Good morning. It is so good to be here with you this morning. It is so good to be home this morning. Back here at Lake Street, we have <clears throat> certainly missed you all and our time spent abroad and certainly thought a lot about you and I'm so glad to be back. I'm extremely excited to have our visitors here with us this, this morning and encourage you to please stick around. Let's get to know you a little bit better. Some of us uh, are already uh, have have relationships, but the rest of us would like to to learn your name and to know a little bit more about you. We are so thankful that you have chosen to be here with us. I've been so thankful for your prayers as well, this of the congregation of you individually, as you prayed for our safe travels, prayed for our safety as we were away. We have greatly appreciated that, and are so thankful that God has brought us back here to you safely. And we had many amazing experiences while we were while we were in South Africa. And, and I know you're excited to hear some of those stories, and we are excited to tell you those stories. But what I want to talk about this morning, well, it's not really, it's not really that amazing in the sense that it's, it's something that is quite common. Uh, it's an experience that happens for some of you, especially those with young children. Maybe you hear this on a regular basis. <clears throat> but it was something that really really made me think. Because while we were in South Africa, while we were traveling through Kruger, the boys were in the back of the van we were riding in, and I heard something that is very common. I heard the three of them singing. I heard Ryder, and I heard Easton, and I heard Madden singing, Jesus Loves Me. You remember the words to that song? Jesus loves me, this I know. It's that next phrase that really caught my attention as they sang it. For the Bible tells me so. What exactly does that mean? What is the importance of that statement? And why does it matter? I hope to begin answering those questions. As we consider this question right here, how did we get the Bible? How? <coughs> Excuse me. How did we get the Bible? Now, I don't have a very long sermon planned for you this morning. And I know that word long is very sub subjective. But what I simply want to do this morning is I want to lay some groundwork for what, Lord willing, we will continue to study as we ponder the question, how did we get the Bible? But we must first begin... We must first begin our thoughts with a clear understanding of what the issue is. One, either the Bible is the Word of God. Or two, it is a man-made piece of literature. One that has led to the death, persecution, <coughs> and complete upheaval of mankind. There is no middle ground. I must stand here and tell you that this morning. There is no middle ground between these two, these two scenarios. Either we have the Word of God or we have the Word of man. And the Bible itself makes, an, uh, makes a... doesn't make, excuse me. The Bible itself doesn't make an unclear appraisal of what it is. Throughout it, it declares that it is in fact the Word of God. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's where my Bible is open to right now. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
verses 16 and 17, a passage we are all quite familiar with. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Those two verses are very important. Peter declared in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21, through 21, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And Paul again told the Christians in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, saying, For this reason we also thank God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Such claims leave no doubt that those who penned Scripture were claiming to do so by the inspiration of God. But that leads us to our, our focus of this morning's study. What is inspiration? <clears throat> when we say that the, Bi- the Bible is the inspired Word of God, what does that mean? What are we claiming? You will oftentimes hear someone speak of inspiration today. Is the inspiration that we often hear about today the same thing as that which penned the Bible? And sometimes you hear an artist speaking of motivation, the, the motivation that brought them to paint a certain painting. Maybe it was a, a scene from nature. And certainly we saw many things in our trip to Africa that if I had the, the ability, if I had the talent, well, I would have been slapping paint onto a canvas because it certainly motivated me and it's sheer beauty. Is that the type of inspiration that we're talking about? Maybe a songwriter who is moved by an experience <coughs> or by a story. The song that we we're going to sing in just a few minutes for invitation. If you know the story behind that, you know that the songwriter had a very moving experience that caused him to pen those words. Is that the inspiration that we are talking about? That inspiration is an emotional type of inspiration. It pulls at the heartstrings. It motivates us to to act in a certain way. But brothers and sisters, that is not the type of inspiration that is being discussed here. Now no doubt, no doubt the the things that the apostles saw, the things that the, the, the writers of the Scriptures experienced, moved them. But they were not just merely moved by what they saw or felt. See, the Bible claims to have been the product of having been directly influenced and produced by God. In the book, The Inspiration and Authority of the Scripture, written by Rene Pock, he found that the phrases such as, Thus saith the Lord... Or the word of the Lord came to blank. Whoever that may be. Those phrases were written and are recorded in the scripture over 3,800 times. Again, the Bible clearly indicates 
that it is the Word of God. But how do we describe this inspiration? Well, here are three ways that we are going to consider today. And the lesson will be yours. The first way is... <clears throat> the first way is plenary or full inspiration. It comes from the Latin word that I will probably mispronounce. Plenus, meaning full. Plenary inspiration describes the fact that all Scripture is inspired. And what that means is that every subject that the Bible covers is done so with the acceptance and inspiration of God. So that means when we read back in Genesis of the days of creation, plenary inspiration or full inspiration claims that the Bible's recordings of this event is not just merely a historical record of how creation happened, which is exactly what it is. But more than that, it is also the intended knowledge that was given to us directly from the Lord Himself. It is what God desired for us to know about creation. Completely inspired. Every subject. That is full inspiration. That also brings us to our second type of inspiration, and that is verbal inspiration. Full inspiration says that every subject in the Bible is inspired by God, but verbal inspiration says that every word of the Bible is inspired by God. <clears throat> this would include words spoken by God the Father and by Jesus. This recordings of their dialogues, these things certainly would be considered inspired by the divine considering the fact that they were spoken by the divine. And you, we oftentimes don't have a problem except ex accepting that. Sometimes you might hear it said, those words in red, those words in red are the really important words. The ones that Jesus spoke, the words that, that we read that God spoke, those are the ones that matter. But we also know that the various writers of Scripture were led in the very words that they used to produce Scripture. And so that means that Paul's words, over in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to turn over there with me for just a moment, Ephesians chapter 5, and what he wrote about the roles of the husband and the wife, start reading with me in verse 22. <clears throat> it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. And because we are members of his body. And then skipping down to verse 31, it says, Therefore, or nevertheless, excuse me, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, when Paul's, 
When Paul writes these words here in Ephesians 5, concerning the roles of the husband and the wife, these words, in most Bibles, are black. But those black words are equally as important as the words in red. Likewise, when we speak about James, James talks about true religion or faith without works. These things are important. Why? Why is it what Paul has to say here is important? Why is it what James has to say over in the book of James so important? Because they come from the same source as those words in red. And you see, this hurts the argument that says what really matters is simply what the Savior said. I'm just going to do what Jesus told me to do. But you know, the rest of those guys, they weren't perfect. Paul, he says a bunch of crazy stuff about women. Kind of has a chauvinistic attitude. I don't think I want to listen to what Paul has to say. And Peter, why would I listen to anything that Peter says? He cursed the Lord. He, or he, he cursed and lied and denied Christ. Excuse me. He cursed and lied and denied Christ. How can the words of a man that be willing to go to such depths to save his own life, how can they be just as authoritative as our, as our Savior? I'll tell you how. Because they come from the same place. 2 Timothy 3.16 doesn't say some Scripture is inspired by God. It doesn't say the words of God and Jesus were inspired by God. It says all Scripture is inspired by God. The words that they spoke are just as important as the words that God and Jesus spoke because they come from the same source. But it's also important to remember that we have dynamic inspiration as well. That is to say that just because the writers were inspired, that doesn't mean that they were mindless robots. Sometimes I think we, we view the, the writers of the New Testament as, as some sort of uh, men that were that were set aside in a in a cold, dark room and just had words injected into their ears and, and they wrote them down on pieces of paper and that's how we got the Bible. But no, that is not the way they were inspired. Their personalities and their environments were allowed to show through. And even though the Holy Spirit held absolute control over the outcome of the message, we still see we still see little bits and pieces of the writer mixed in. Take, for example, over in Acts chapter 27. As, <coughs> as Luke records the shipwreck in Acts 27. Start reading with me in verse 14. It says, But before very long there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uraquelo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clotta, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were be being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing them, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Now as we read this, I hope we understand 
that the Holy Spirit certainly had no reason to be afraid during this shipwreck. I don't think at any point the Holy Spirit put it into the mind of, of Luke to write down about those violent winds and the, the ship being tossed to and fro because he was scared of what that might cause to his being. But yet Luke records this account. And he records the violent winds and he records the violent storm, the ship being thrown overboard, the fearful reaction that they had trying to save the, the, the boat from being destroyed. And he records it even with a, that twinge of fear saying that they hadn't seen the sun or stars for many days. This was no small storm. All hope is gradually being lost. Does this sound like the Holy Spirit speaking of His fear of the storm that affected Luke and Paul? Of course not. What we see is the humanity of the author here. We see Luke as he writes this. But every word spoken is in fact inspired by the Holy Spirit and is written to make man complete, drawing us closer to God and teaching us more about God. Here specifically, we are learning how He is faithful to the promises He makes, like the promise to Paul that he would go and that he would preach in Rome. And so as a result of this, as a result of, uh, of these types of inspiration, for those who claim that the Bible is more than simply a man-made piece of literature, we see that when the Scripture was penned, it was, in its entirety, God speaking through these inspired writers to reveal His Word. Each of these three descriptions addresses a different yet true aspect of the nature of biblical inspiration. The Bible is wholly, completely inspired. In every word... In every phrase, it was revealed under the control of the Holy Spirit by individuals with individual personalities and individual places in their lives under their own free will. You want to know what is so amazing about the song, Jesus Loves Me? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's because it is a reminder. Sometimes we sing that song here on our third Sunday in the, in the afternoon singing service. We say we pick this one out for the children. And that's good because they, they need to learn that song. They need to know and be reminded that Jesus does love us. But that song is important for me and you as well. Because it is the reminder that God loves us and He has told us that He loves us. John 3, chapter 16, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is more. Brothers and sisters, this is more than just fictitious works. This is more than just the work of a man over the ages trying to trick others into thinking that there is some guy in the sky who looks down and sees them. And we will talk more about that in another lesson. But what I want us to understand is that these are the actual words of God, this time spoken by Jesus Christ here in this passage. <clears throat> and they describe the love God has for us. 
that he would sacrifice his own son so that you might live? How will you respond to that inspired message? I hope and I pray that it is in obedience to other inspired passages, such as Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, which says God requires repentance of mankind today. God will not turn a blind eye to sin and to the ways of, of evil. He requires us to turn from wickedness and turn towards righteousness, turn towards Him. Romans 10, verse 10, which reminds us that God desires confession for salvation. Certainly confession amongst other like-minded people as we tell them that we do believe that Jesus is His Son, the Son of the living God, and that He is alive today, reigning. And we must submit ourselves to Him. But when we also confess that to others in the world through our lives, each day, with every step that we take, with every action that we commit, Do we tell others that we believe Jesus is our Lord and Savior? Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 commands us to be baptized for the remission of sins. God is telling us here through His inspired message that that we are sinful. But He has chosen a way in which that sin can be removed. And it is through baptism. 1 Corinthians 15.58 which tells us to remain steadfast in the Lord. This is God's message for you. It's God's message for me. And it came from Him and from no one else. So the question this morning is this, what will you do with His message? Will you respond to it by obeying what we just talked about? What about this? Will you keep that message to yourself? Or will you take that message, that inspired message of His love, and will you share it with others? If we can help you this morning in responding to the good news of Christ that He came to make you free from sin, then we are here to help in whatever way we can. Please let it be known right now as we stand and as we sing.